Hey everybody, Beards and Dunn are back and we brought a friend with us. If you haven't recognized him by now, let me introduce Mr. Bill Rogers. And and Bill, you know, speaking for Dick and myself, we are just so I got goosebumps right now. And and I, I told uh, when we announced that you were gonna be on our podcast, I said I'll probably be at a loss for words and Nobody's believed that because I, I talk a mile a minute, but I, I have to admit this is really intimidating and very um, exciting for me because I, I was in high school. I had just graduated in 75 and, you know, I remember opening up the paper and saw a guy with a T-shirt, handwritten Boston TC or something <laughs> like that, won the Boston Marathon. I had never heard of you. You know, I'd, I'd heard of Ron Hill and, and Jerome Drayton and, and a lot of these guys and who in the and they actually they didn't even call you Bill Rogers in our paper they they called you Will Rogers <laughs> and I don't know if you get that a lot but um well anyway everybody for those of you that may be new to the sport or aren't as old as Dick and I and Bill uh, I, you know I I can't even do Bill's resume credit I you know the the easy ones are four time Boston Marathon champion four time New York City Marathon champion. Uh, three times ranked number one in the world in the marathon. Um, I, I, I can't remember the race. Uh, Fukuoka. Am I saying that? Fukuoka. Fukuoka, which is kind of the world championship marathon. He, he's a champion of that race in numerous Stockholm, you know, Houston. The list goes on and on. And so, um, you know, I think Dick mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. You had a, the title. You were known as King of the Road. And it was such a joy to be a college runner and, and getting runner's world or track and field news and just looking at the results and just, just marveling at that. And so, you know, this, I kind of like, a, I feel like a little kid meeting his, his uh, baseball idol or whatever it is. Or, and so I, I'm, I'm super excited, but um, enough about th this, I'm going to turn it over to you two guys, you know, and, and um, you two have kind of a unique relationship and, and let's lead off how did Bill? Do you remember your first impression or remembrance of who is Dick Beardsley? Well, first, Mike, I just want to say I'm very glad to be on this show with you and Dick, because you're buddies from way back and everything. And I think I think things go smoother when you know you work on something you really like and respect. But um, the first time Dick and I really bumped into each other, I know I've often forgotten it. Uh, I think it was at the junior college championships in Dickman the marathon yes but but I, what i re, i remember that our days duking it out you know at, at the houston marathon and and we ran together we represented the united states at stockholm marathon, right which is very much like the new york city marathon with big bridges and all and but but bill always seemed to find a way i i only i only finished in front of him i think one time and and uh but you know it was funny bill when you said Oh, when Dick and I first bumped into each other, remember when we bumped into each other at the 1980 New York City Marathon? Yes, 1980 New York, I think, was the year I was defending champion. And you were going for five wins in a row. Yeah, I was going for my fifth win. And I think I made a crazy move. I ran the Toronto Marathon two weeks before because those are the days we were kind of um, trying to be professionals but not allowed to be by world right. athletics. And, and such. So we would be paid a fee. So we raced pretty heavily. So I ran Toronto, but Dick and I uh, collided with it, with each other in the race. It was a big pack of about 15 of us duking it yeah. out, led by Alberto Salazar, who went on to win. But 
but it was great fun because, uh, you know, we kind of got to know each other at New York City as well, you know, and, and, and on the roads. You have fun at these events, no matter what happens. You really do. And, and you know, Bill, of all the people I raced against, including Alberto Salazar and Frank Shorter, and, you know, I could go on and on and on. But, you know, Bill was probably the most tenacious runner I'd ever ran against. And, but, but, but also... Of all the people I ran against, the most likable guy and and Bill, I was telling you this at the Oklahoma City Marathon, you know, back at the end of April. You know, Bill's 75 and I'm 67 and I've known Bill for over 40 years and you you haven't changed at all, Bill. You're still that just everybody loves you and you're, you know, you'll stay to the, I, I remember at races, you know, back, uh, you know, afterwards or before. And you'd be signing autographs and whatever, and you would stay if if they were you were supposed to stay till two o'clock in the afternoon. There were still people in line. You sat you you sat there and and talked to every person and and um, you know you of all the runners I've known, you know I competed against, you know you and I, Bill, have you know just remained good buds and we we're we're in contact with each other fairly often. And uh, man, my hat goes off to you. Really, it really does. Dick, you know what I think it is a little bit about our generation of runners? It was so astounding that the running boom was actually happening. Right. It came out of nowhere. It came out of Frank Shorter's Olympic gold victory in the marathon in Munich, Germany, 1972. Prior to that, Americans weren't considered to be amongst the best in the world. And suddenly, a door opened. Isn't that true, Dick? And we oh, absolutely. We our way through after Frank and, and had fun with it. And the boom kept growing and the numbers of runners kept growing and growing. And to this day, I believe it's one of the biggest sports in the world, you know, marathoning and athletics. So we, I, I always just felt so lucky, Dick, Yeah. in my life. And I think you did too. Um, you bet. I mean, you, you, you're an active person. You were growing up in Minnesota. You are outside. You're probably snowshoeing, or and you're a fisherman. You're a guy. Right. You're, you're a pro. You know, so you understood that life. You know, and, and but to become a, a runner is is I don't know. It's something. It's like it's a different world. You know, it's totally in a unique world. But those were great days, and they still are. And it's great that we can still enjoy them. So, Bill, is it true? Growing up, did you play hockey? I played hockey a little bit out in those swamps, like you know. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that you and your brother, your older brother, Charlie. Yeah. And we would be out there and just like three of us on one side and two on the other or something. <laughs> and, and I made one of our family friends mad at me and he threw a hatchet at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness it didn't hit you. At no. least it hit you where it counted anyhow. You no. know, Bill, I, I tried playing hockey, of course, you know, in, in Connecticut, Massachusetts, that New England area, hockey's very big. Minnesota, it's kind of the king of sports out out here. And um, some of the best advice I ever received is when I was a senior in high school, my hockey coach, he goes, he goes, Beards, you know, you can't play on the JV team anymore when you're a senior. He goes, you know, I see you running every day and at, during the study hall. He goes, maybe you ought to put a little more effort into your into your running Bill, I haven't had a pair of skates on since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I know what you're saying. We're not exactly um, muscle masses, you know, no. or body types. We're kind of skinny, 
you get honed down when you're doing high mileage like we used to do. But but I think there's a connection. It was that being outdoors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Bill, I want to back up just a little bit. So, you know, back in the, you know, early, mid, well, especially by the mid-70s, after you won Boston in 1975, set the American record at 209.55. And then you and Frank Shorter really – you had some pretty good duels throughout the years after that, didn't you? Yeah, we did. I, I took me a while to get to know Frank because he was living in Colorado. I'm here in Massachusetts. And he um, he was doing everything. He was doing track, cross country, marathoning, and road racing. Whereas, you know, it's like you and I, Dick, were mainly road racer specialists and marathoners. Right. So it took a while also to to get our cardio strength, I think it takes a couple of years to build to your best if you're a new runner, you know, if you, you get into the marathon. And just like your sequence of marathoning, Dick, where you gradually improved and went up and up and up by notches. Yeah. Know? But to reach Frank, he was at the very top. <laughs> right. So were you ever in, when you first started racing against him, Bill, and you're mm-hmm. standing on the front, you know, on the front row, did you ever feel... Gosh, this is the Olympic gold medalist I'm going up against. Did you ever feel a little bit intimidated, or did you look at yourself and say, hey, I've done the work, and I can race with and run with this guy? Um, there was a little of both. You know, when I first raced, raced Frank, and I didn't know him, you know, and he beat me, I think, you know, our first few races. Yeah. Like, you know, in 75, we ran the World Cross Country Trials together. But in the championships, I actually edged him, you know, and, and won a bronze medal that day. So after that race, I felt I could race him. You know what I mean? Right. Once you can win over another runner, then you feel, well, now I got a chance. Or, yeah, it gives you some confidence. You're there. So it shows you how much is here. Oh, and Bill, don't you think, yeah, that, you know, I remember standing on the starting line in Boston in 1882 and looking over and seeing you and Alberto and all these other, you know, top-notch runners. And, you know, we all kind of do the same type of training, but then yeah. it, it's it's that mental stuff. And I always said, in in my opinion, you were the most, one of the most mentally tough runners that I'd ever met. I mean, you really were. You were, I, there was just, I mean, I, just racing against you. It was like, I, I still remember when, when we were flying over to the Stockholm Marathon in 1981, do you remember you and Ambie Burfoot were sitting right in front of me? And I remember you turning back a couple times and talking to me, and I'm thinking, this is unbelievable. Bill Rogers is, is talking to me. And then, um, you know, we you won the race that year. I got second, and, um, you know, it was just... Uh, hey, do you remember I, that it was kind of a duel? The two Americans... Two yes, top Americans against two top Swedes, and the Swedes were very good. Stahl and yep. um, Tommy Person, right? And and so it was quite a quite a competitive race. And the big bridges lot. This race is a lot like for any of your listeners who have done the New York City Marathon with the bridges and everything. That's what Stockholm's like. But it, I just thought right. it was the most spectacular. And, marathon. I, and I remember it was pretty warm that day that we ran that year yes. and stuff. And I think you ran, you won in like 213 and I was like 216 in second place or something like that. Well, Dick, you know what? The interesting thing is, of course, like so many races, we grew up during the period when exercise science was developing. Right. It wasn't there yet. 
no. the Boston Marathon still started at 12 noon of the heat exactly. of the Exactly. <laughs> and all the race directors all over the country and the world thought, well, I guess we should start our race at 12 noon. <laughs> yeah, they kind of followed the cue of, of Boston because it was the oldest and most prestigious marathon in the world. So, Bill, backing up a little bit. So, in 1975, you finished third at the World Cross Country Championships. I mean, at that point... Wasn't that one of the highest, if not the highest, American finishes ever in cross in in world cross country? Um, for world cross country, actually started around the beginning of twentieth century, like nineteen oh three or something. Oh, wow, it's old old sport. But world level, um, the there's four American guys who have medaled in the senior division. We've had juniors, you know, under age twenty yes. who have won it. Bobby Thomas back in seventy five. Uh, women champions like Julie Brown, she won it in 75. Um, most of our top runners, um, Shalane Flanagan, Dana Castor, they both have medaled there. So so Americans have always been good in cross country. and um, But I didn't know what the heck was going on. I was fourth in the trial, and um, but it was so exciting. And I just went out with a gun. I had a great day. I was very lucky, though. I forgot my shoes. What? My I didn't have racing shoes, so I borrowed them from uh, uh, Gary Tuttle from California, oh, yeah. a fellow who I had tied with at the trials, you know. But it was a great honor, you know, to, to, to win that. I never won an Olympic medal, but to win a medal in World Cross was exciting. Oh, it, yeah, because they say that's one of the toughest races to get on the podium of about any long-distance race in the country because you're bringing in not only top marathoners, but, you know, milers and five and 10,000 meter specialists. So you're kind of going up against the best of the best in about every long distance event there is. I loved studying the history of running. And I think Tracy Smith was the only American who had ever medaled before you, Bill. You're absolutely right, Mike, you know, and I, his name eluded me split second. I'm getting older, but I know who he is. <laughs> I raced him indoors on the track in Vermont over three miles once. And he just, nailed me you know but yeah so we've always done well and um produced great teams there craig virgin is probably our men's greatest champion he's won two goals at world cross country right and participated in about eight of them danny Dillon competed there joan benoit competed world cross country so, so it's just exciting stuff but it's every race is different anyway i i think I was more of a road racer, really. And just Me had, too. I had a very lucky day that day. But after that, Dick, a month later was Boston. The tricky thing was I caught uh, my stomach. Uh, got a little upset when I was at that race in Morocco. Oh, See, sure. Training runs, I had some <laughs> really interrupted training runs, you know, where I'd have to hit to the side of the road. Look yeah. The but at Boston, when I was on the line, after that medal, I felt I can race with anyone because I beat Frank in that race. Yes. And many other top runners. So I think what I'm trying to say a little bit, Mike and Dick, for your listeners is when you're a new runner, you know, if you stick with it, you will always improve. And sooner or later, you're going to make breakthroughs, you know? Don't you yeah. think that's true, Dick and Mike? I think that's the truth. Well, and Bill, so you ran, you dropped out of the first time you ever ran Boston. Yes. You came back, ran it again, and ran like 228 or something? Yes. And then, so then in 1975, 
You come back to Boston. Yeah. You set an American record. You had to stop twice. Tell us a little bit about that day, the conditions, uh, when you kind of kind of broke away on your own, Bill. You know, Dick, it was a perfect day to run because it was cool, cool to cold almost, like 45 degrees, something like that, and we had a tailwind. Nice. Which, which happens about once every 10 years. It was very different from the duel in the sun year when you dueled with Alberto, you know, at Boston, one of the hardest Bostons ever. And, um, but it was a perfect day to race. My brother, Charlie was at the start and we've been runners together since we were in high school and everything, you know, and, and he, I was cold. I was standing around, you know, and, uh, he ran over to our hardware store and got me some gloves, you know, <laughs> And after I run that race, I felt like these are my lucky gloves. Right. We were a little superstitious, us runners. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Something up here in our heads. <laughs> but but I got into a duel with Jerome Drayton, who is a friend from way back. But I didn't know too much about marathoning. That was like my fifth marathon or something. Yeah. But once I heard someone yell, go Canada around the eight, seven or eight mile mark. And I said, no, no, you know, I'm going for it. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. So you made a move fairly early in the race? Yeah, I made a move to break away and force the pace. You know, I was just experimenting as a marathoner, but I knew that I had had that medal from World Cross. So, right. And with the tailwind, Jerome did probably didn't know who the heck I am. This guy's going to fold his cards a little later. Yeah. Which I had done in previous marathons. Yeah. <laughs> so... But it turned out to be an ideal day to run, and, and it was a, a breakthrough marathon for me. It changed my life. Bill, there, I remember some great photos. Uh, Dick and I were talking about this last week. I never practiced drinking on my training runs. It just wasn't something – I didn't know where, where do you get a drink out on a training run, a you know, gas station, a garden hose or something. But we rarely did it, and so in races, I was always very leery to drink much because you were the, the side stitch was always the big fear that could take you out of your race. And I remember there were photos of you walking and drinking. It's true. And I don't know who gave me that water. I don't think Boston had official water. They didn't have no. Yeah. Someone came out with cups of water somehow or other. It might've been coach Squires. Could yeah, have been. Our coach, you know, and um, something like that. But that gave me a mental break. And then my shoelaces came untied. I have to tie my shoes, but then, <laughs> Then that, that re-energizes you. You just stop a little bit. You yeah. rest. And a little bit of rest, you know, I think psychologically is everything. And then you get back into the race, you know. And so, Bill, you, you know, being born and raised out in New England. So did the local people in 1975 know who you were? I mean, the crowds must have been going crazy for you at that, that day. Well, you know, I had run for the BAA for a year, my first year, because Jack Simple brought me into the BAA after I placed second to Amby Burfoot, Boston Marathon champion from 68. Yeah. My former roommate in college and all. So I learned a lot about marathoning from Amby. But um, I think, um, ooh, I'm losing my train of thought. Oh, did the crowds know who I was? Well, yeah. my, my singlet said GBTC Boston. Right. So people saw Boston and they they don't know who this guy is, but he's he's up there, you know. So they're going to yell for you. You know what I mean, Dick? Yeah. And the crowds in Boston were always just, you know, even to this day, amazing. But, you know, I know when I ran it in 80, 1982, you know, I think that was the last year. 
I think that they didn't have fencing up. You remember how the crowds were that day in 1982? They were like right on top of us. Oh yeah. And Bill, you know, jumping ahead to 82, you know, that was a hot day that year. And I know you didn't like running the heat, but you know, you were, you know, in all honesty, you know, you were probably on the backside of your, of your career as a marathoner, but you still, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, you yep. still were, were always a threat and everything, but you ran, I mean, you ran 212 that day on a hot day. I was third until a mile ago when John Lodwick passed me, tall Texan. Yes. And, um, but, you know, you guys were out of sight. And when I, I knew that Alberto had run 2730, 10K on the track. Right. Racing Henry Rono, the great Kenyan champion who competed for Washington State University. And when I saw that, I said, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And I didn't know about your training deck so much, you know, yeah. what you were doing. But I think I knew, of course, that you were steadily improving, you know, and what a great day that was, you know, for the Boston Marathon, for you, for, for Alberto. I think Alberto, we started to learn a little bit more about Alberto and his struggles with the heat. Yes. You know what I mean? And so, like, he had collapsed in the heat at Falmouth when he was young. And, right. You know, Falmouth's often very, very humid, tough race. So so I think that's kind of like part of the Boston Marathon is that it can be anything, you know. And and, <laughs> and somehow you were in great shape that day and he just annihilated you. Well, and I, I got, you know, it was like, like I, I, I've said this many times, Bill. There's not a whole lot of athletes in an in in whether it be in a team sport or an individual sport like running that has got more bang for their buck for finishing second than i have honest to gosh you know i mean it um i mean it it's a, I, yeah, yeah. It i think that's what it was and, uh, you know it was two young american kids going at it you know from the get-go and the, it, speed, um, the struggles look at Ilya kipchoge comes to boston he could right make, you know dick this is one of the hardest races ever in Boston Marathon history, a 125-year-old race. And, and you and Alberto took the race apart, and it was just a shocker. And that's why the book was written. And, and for anyone who's listening, I hope they'll tune into uh, your story, the story of that race, you know, and, and check out the video, too, because it, it was it's just off the charts. It's still hard for me to get a grip on it mentally that, that you guys could duel in the heat like that. You know, yeah, so long and, and, and wow, it was like a boxing match, you know? Yeah, it kind of was. So, Bill, speaking of books, you, you've you written a number of books. Tell us about a few of them. What was the very first book that, you know, that got published and, and got out there for all of us to be able to read? Well, I did a book in 1980 with uh, Boston Globe writer uh, Joe Kincannon. I remember Joe. He was a great guy. I love the sport. He helped start the Litchfield Road Race in Connecticut, which is right. today, about 45 years ago, along with the help of Tommy Leonard, a runner's friend, and um, and also the founder of the Falmouth Road Race. But um, that book didn't do too well. They probably thought that it was going to sell a lot of copies because Jim Fix had written the complete book of running. Yes. Which sold so many copies. It was the number one best-selling book, I think, of the 1970s or something. Right. So, so, but I think there were very few marathoners in the U.S. in 1980. Right. So not too many would be interested in such a book, you know. 
But I've got a book now called Marathon Man, and I take that to races, you know, um, like Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon. Right. You got your books too, Dick, and I've read them. You know, they're fantastic. I've got a pretty good collection of running books. You know, this is like a fixation, and but it it's fun to to read the stories of all the different athletes. You know, whether it's Kara uh, Gouchers, your fellow Minnesotans, right? New recent book. Um, Karen was reading that and would read me excerpts, uh, or you know, um, Dina Castor's book about the mental side of sports. And sure. Stay calm and and her her attempts to become a high level runner. And I think I think what we also need though are books for the high school kids, you know, and and the coaches. So so the next this next generation, which is absolutely huge in numbers in cross country. Yes. Is not one of the great advantages of our sport, I think, Dick and Mike, is that it's not just guys out there. It's no. too, you know, and so they're out there in huge numbers, and that's the strength of our sport. We're kind of like soccer that way. Right. Well, you look at the numbers now, Bill, on a lot of the marathons and other road races, the, the women outnumber the guys in, on, on a lot of events now, which is great, great to see. Um, I want to back up a little bit and just talk about a dear person that, I know he helped you an awful lot, and he sure helped me an awful lot. And unfortunately, he passed away uh, almost a year ago now. Coach Bill Squires, tell us a little bit about your insight into Coach Squires. And he was he was quite a character, quite a wonderful man, wasn't he, Bill? He had, he had a runner's energy and spirit and attitude. You know, he could be feisty. He was a great oh, yeah. He was a modeler at Notre Dame and a high school champion. And um, gave so much to the sport. I think he's one of America's great coaches. And Alberto Salazar was coached by him uh, when he was a high schooler and when he was also running sometimes with Greater Boston Track Club. But, but I think Squires, it was more that it wasn't just training knowledge, but more his spirit. Right. That motivated us. His being on our side. You knew yeah. he was on your side. And and he was a fierce competitor. And when you oh yeah, support support is everything. I think. Oh, for sure. And and you know, Bill, when did when did you actually start working with him? Were you working with Coach Squires when you won your first Boston in nineteen seventy five? Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, yes, I was. Okay. I did, um, the Greater Boston Track Club is now fifty years old. They just had a couple of celebrations. One at the Boston Marathon this April, and then they had one, a separate meeting at Boston College, but Squires, Greater Boston was formed by Bob Seventy, um, track coach, former track coach at Bentley University, and part, sometime coach for Joan Bonite Samson. Yeah. The Olympic old. But um, I think Billy joined Greater Boston, and it started 73, I think I joined 74. Okay. So I was learning the marathon, and we were all trained on the track at Boston College. Yeah, winners, some high jumpers, you know, some really uh, quick people as well. Jack McDonald was the other fellow who started the club. And um, it was just a bunch of us former runners from high school to college days. And I think I think once you're a runner, you never kind of want to quit. But maybe when you to go into the real world is a challenging thing after high school or college. 
It's yeah. Like, what am I going to do? My job, and 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 how difficult it is to keep on and keep your health and fitness is a major issue. You know. Oh, for sure. And and Bill, so you know, 1975, you win the Boston Marathon. Then you you know you go on and you start getting on a roll, New York. And and in 1977, you and your brother Charlie opened up your first running store. You were there was a Bill Rogers running uh, clothing line you made those white gloves you probably sold millions of those white <laughs> gloves i mean you know and you were i mean you were on the cover of sports illustrated more than once i mean you really i know frank kind of kicked off the running boom but man to me it was you that just kind of even opened it up more for the for the general masses and people know who you were and you were able to to capitalize on how good of an athlete you were, but not only how good of an athlete, but just just an all-around good guy. Like I said earlier, you know, you'd stay to the cows went home, you know, talking to people, signing autographs and things. So when did you and Charlie decide, you know what, let's try opening a running store? You know, I just wanted to say about Frank, I always take my hat off to him for what he did. Right. And, done and continue doing, and um, because I think, you need a rival. You yes. Need rivals. You know, he, for a while, was standing alone. But then you challenged Frank. I challenged him. Greg Meyer did all of right. his great version. And, and, and so that's part of sports, you know. But um, Charlie and I, I had, well, Tommy Leonard, you know Tommy Leonard, the Boston bartender. You he, bet. He was also a Falmouth bartender, started the Falmouth Road Race. He used to say to me, Bill, why don't you open a running store? <laughs> no kidding. You know, I was a teacher for about three years. And, um, but it started to click in my head. Maybe we should do that. So um, we opened our store in 77. And Charlie became our manager, you know. Yeah. And, and Jason Kehoe, who was in my our book, Marathon Man. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Friends. So he was our assistant manager, Jason. And Jason, we were all teammates in cross country in high school. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about. It's just like you guys know each other. Right. You and Mike know each other from way back. So so when you work with your family and friends, it's fun. And we had a lot of fun at our store. You know, the store exists online now, you know. and we Oh, still- nice. Yeah. So, Bill, talk about that. How can people still kind of get, uh, maybe get some things from your store? Uh, let me see if I can figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a business guy. I was always one of these people who was like trying to figure out, let's see. Uh, hey, Beards, I got to throw this in here. I was working at Athletic Attic, which was a franchise of Marty LaCourie's that he had started. And I was working there and the owner was a performer uh, NFL player and he was a runner, he and his wife. And so I was there and they really endorsed hiring runners because that just, the and if you're a decent runner, they really liked it because then people would come in. We'd talk running and racing and, and training. And and my favorite Gore-Tex suit was a Bill Rogers. It was a really pretty blue <laughs> Gore-Tex. And, and uh, I tell you, I had that thing. I wonder how many miles I put on that. Being in South Dakota, Bill, you really need a Gore-Tex running suit, let me tell you. And I passed that thing on. And I don't know if, if, uh, if Dick remembers Jarvis Jellin. Was a oh, yeah. Sioux Falls. He was a state champion in South Dakota. And I gave it to him because I couldn't wear the damn thing out. <laughs> it was really well made, Bill. I don't know who made those things for you. And uh, 
it, what's funny is when I gave it to Jarvis, I, 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 I held it up. I weighed like 140 pounds, you know, when I was running. I won't tell you what I weighed today, Bill, but I, if I put that thing on, I would have tore the sleeves right off of it. But anyway, <laughs> I just had it. I just, I love that, uh, you know, the Bill Rogers line. Yeah, you, uh, you, you hopefully did pretty well. I heard there was a once a fire though, and took out a whole warehouse full of your. Is that true, or was that at New Balance? Maybe that was New Balance Shoe Company had a, a warehouse fire in Boston one time. But I don't I remember us having a fire. But in regards Good. to the running gear, Frank Shorter started Frank Shorter Sportswear right after Run Hill in England. The great British champion, yep. and track champion, started it because. We, quote, amateur athletes were trying to find a way, how can we improve as the standards of challenge of competition keep rising in the sports world, you know, and make a living and do it, compete even more effectively. So that's what happened. So Frank got permission from um, United States Track and Field to open his uh, sports line. And I remember going to a trade show in New York, and, and one of his um, co-workers gave me a, a Frank Shorter sportswear suit. So I wore it for a while, but it was too small for me. So I gave it to Johnny Kelly. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we're going to put the link for your uh, for your line on our website. We'll put that up there. So, Yeah, yeah. So we started this clothing line. I, I didn't know how to get going to start the business, but I got contacted by a fellow who knew uh, the clothing business. And, that's, and about five of us put our money together it was a little startup, but we built it wow. up good. But we were small businesses in the end. And and when the shoe companies saw their shoe sales going up and these two guys starting this little, they got into clothing too. And and so we got crushed in the end, or at least yeah. I did. <laughs> yeah. And Bill, speaking of shoe companies, so back, when did you get your first like shoe contract and who was it with? My first shoe contract, after I won Boston in 75, I spoke to somebody at New Balance and, and a fellow at Nike. Um, the fellow at New Balance said he would, they would pay me $500 to run in New Balance the next year. Yeah. And I was on my way to the Fukuoka International Marathon, which is considered to be the world championships. Right. Which Frank Shorter has won four times, you know. Wow. It's a serious race. So I stopped by Nike on the way out. In those days, though, we could not have an agent. None of us right. knew what we were doing. No. We were very vulnerable. But but the fellow at Nike offered me $500 too. And I, I think I've said, oh, that sounds good because that's the way I am. <laughs> right. They might have thought I agreed. Or, but I, there was no signing or anything. So I went to Japan and folks from ASICS were there. And they offered me $3,000. Holy cow. That was a lot of money back then. That was a lot of money back then. And it was actually a three-year deal. And it notched up. So I thought I was rich now. You know? Right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But it was fun. And you know what? The thing is, I really loved the shoes. Um, perhaps if I had signed with Nike, I might have been have a lot more money in my bank account. But the A6 shoes did work really well for me. And when it comes right down to it, you got to have, you know, if the shoe feels crappy on your foot and doesn't allow you to race to your best, then, you know, it's just not worth, you know, taking a few more bucks. Talking about shoes, I just want to interject, you know, the super shoe that we keep hearing about on the, any 
feelings. I mean, it's technology. It's advancing. It's kind of like yep. pole vaulting. You know, they, they used bamboo or something back in the day. Yes. Then they went to fiberglass and who knows, carbon fiber. Yeah. It, it's so hard, though, to compare generational athletes and course records and things like that. Well, if you look at the Boston Athletic Association Museum, they have the shoes worn and the trophies worn by athletes going back 100 years. Yeah. And you can see that equipment and gear make such a big, play such a big role. And, and I think World Athletics is trying to monitor that in regards to the super shoes. And, and I did read of one athlete who won a good marathon and would have won prize money, but his shoes were a little bit too uh, stacked. The stack height. Right. Yeah, so they did not, they took his win away. You know, so, oh. so I, think, I think it's um, certain standards that the shoe companies are all following now, because I think when I, I told one of my friends about it and he said, Bill, they're going to make a lot of money with these shoes, but I've tried them a little bit and they haven't really worked with me yet. Dick, have you tried any of those kinds of shoes? I, you know, New Balance sent me a pair, Bill, a couple of years ago, a year and a half ago. And I have to admit now, you know. I, I'm slow now, but they they definitely they push you forward when you run. And yeah. and I noticed my legs weren't near as beat up. Bill, could you imagine if you would have had those shoes back at your prime? You you yeah. might have run a two oh five marathon or something. You know, it's so bizarre because I can't get my mind around the times. Right. I know it. I can't either. And and I know it's partly the advanced training and support. It's financial right. support. And these athletes don't race. I used to race four marathons a year. Where Me the, too. Yeah, you did too. Benji Durden did, Ron Tab. Yeah. Us, Patty Dillon, you know, all the runners. We all ran four marathons a year, and then we'd run 25 road races. Exactly. And get, make 500 bucks at each race, make a living, like everyone else was doing in America. But, but it was today, I think they can sit back. If you can break through and do really well in one marathon, the money is so much higher. Oh, my gosh. We're not like soccer or baseball or football. Nowhere's near that. No. But, but the runners, there are some very wealthy runners walking the planet today. And that's there really are. And, and Bill, the, some of the appearance monies you hear about now in the six figures just to you know, come and run a race, whether you finish first or finish last, it's pretty amazing. It's astounding to us because we came from the, the amateur days, which right. we talked about earlier. And and no matter who you were, you were a quote amateur, you ran for honor, but you, you can't, it's hard to digest that, you know, it's, you got to be able to eat and make a living, you know, and, and you and I were both poor. Right. <laughs> and, I poor, and, and, and so were all the other runners. So there was, I think it was, our generation did play a role. And, and moving to a, a higher level sport. And I think by doing that, the door opened to more people. Yeah. And more people got into it. And like you said, Dick and Mike, that more women have come into the sport, and which makes it more normal. You know. Yeah. Normal. And that's a good thing for yeah. everybody. So Don, do, do we, uh, I know we're getting close to 40 minutes here. Do you have some, some questions that some of the people. Now, let me read it here. Somebody, oh, I think I know who this riot is. It says, uh, Mr. Rogers, from your first race into your last race, what race made you the most proud? And why did that race have such an impact? And I had the same question on my mind. 
you know, what was, is there one race bill that it stands out in your memory and say, you know, this one? Well, I, I probably have, I have to, there's more than that, but you know what I remember? I, I do go back my high school years. I won, uh, not the state meet, but a qualifier for the state meet, you know, and that race, when I won that, it changed my thinking sort of, and, uh, the state meet didn't go that well, but, but it changed my <laughs> thinking. And I think that's what our sport is about, changing your thinking, you know, and what, what you can do, that sort of thing. So, so that was just fun for me, you know. <laughs> that's good. You know, that was like something clicked. You know, that was the, it, it clicked. And something. I got another question here. Um, I think I know this uh, questionnaire as well. It says, if you had any setbacks that made you question that you'd be able to continue running, and if you did, what what kept you going? I don't know, Bill. I I don't know in your career. I know in Montreal you had an injury. You know, I, I did have an injury at Montreal, but I knew I could come back from that. That what what once I overall I've had good health. And I think that's a message that we've been able to talk about a lot is how this sport is the sport of pretty good health. And, yeah. And how we can keep that and you don't have to run marathons your whole career or something. You you can drop down to 10Ks and 8Ks, and that's what I've done. But um, about 20 years ago, I was on a run. I had just competed in the age 50s division at Falmouth. But I was on a run with some buddies, and I broke my leg. I remember that. I, I didn't know why I broke my leg. I later, I think I was, well, it was my stronger leg. And, and I think we can get stress fractures, you know, because we're such co competitive people. We're out there every day, twice a day sometimes. And maybe I wasn't cross-training enough. I'm not sure, but I, I was on a cast for about three months. So I wasn't sure, in other words, Mike, why I broke my leg. So that worried me that maybe it's bone cancer. Someone said that. Yeah. And that scares you, you know. But but it wasn't. I came back from that. Um, later, I had one other thing that hit me. I was hit with cancer in um, 2008. You know, right. Cancer. Very common cancer, us guys. Um, analogous to breast cancer for women. And, and, and so I would recommend to any of the guys out there listening to get tested, you know, age 45. Uh, I didn't get tested till I was, I think, early 50s, something like that, you know. But if you do that, you know, then you, you stay in touch with your doctor. You know, you're going to keep going and everything, you know. You're going to be all right. Absolutely. Okay, one, one more question. It says, uh, and this is a good one. It says, do you have advice for amateur runners that looking to take their running more seriously, like maybe wanting to take it up a notch? I guess this kind of gets into training a little bit, your, your philosophy or principle that you would really promote. That's a really good question. And one thing I always think of is someone to run with. Mm. you got to have someone to run with. Yeah. It's not the loneliness of the long-distance runner. Yeah, that was more about something else, you know. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> it's about a young kid in reform school and all that. He was kind of like Dick and me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, but, but seriously, if you can join a running club and meet other runners, your life will change. Yeah, my partner Karen, she, her kids were athletes in high school, were runners, but she wasn't a runner, and she was hit with breast cancer about twenty years ago. And her oncologist said, "Why don't you try running? You know, she used to be a gym person. Try running, you know, because it lifts you up so much. It, it lifts us up up here, yeah, physically and mentally. So, so I would say join a running club for sure. 
So, Bill, you know, if any races, any people are, are watching our podcast, listening to it, and um, how can they, how can an organization get a hold of you if they'd want to, like, bring you in to speak at one of their events? And because uh, you're one of, you're the best of the best when it comes to that. We have a lot of fun. And, um, you know, our store address is um, bostonbilly1975 at gmail.com. Yeah. Bostonbilly1975 at gmail.com. So yeah. if somebody hears this, wants to get in contact with you, they could send you that email then, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That would, well, Bill, Don and I cannot thank you enough. This is, this is such an honor. If you would have asked me when I, started running back in 1973 and you were, you know, when I got into running and and you were the guy that I kind of was my Mickey Mantle if I was a baseball player, <laughs> to think that 40-some years later I'd be done and I would be sitting here talking to to, to Bill Rogers and, and that I'd become, we'd become such good friends over the years, I would have I would have bet money against it. So we, I don't know about you, Doug, but I, I can't thank you enough, Bill, for taking the time it's out of your honor. day it's, to do yeah, this. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. I, I, I you know, we, we always have a, a intense feelings about our sport because it's such an intense sport. But I think the key is what you are doing with your podcast. You're passing the torch, which is everything. You're passing the torch. And well, even though we're older, we're still hanging on a little bit by our fingernails and we're having fun. <laughs> but thank you so well, much. Well, Bill, thank you, buddy. We'll, uh, we'll talk again soon. We sure appreciate it. Thank you, thank you. Uh, and, and we want to thank everybody for listening today. And if you have any questions for uh, Dunn and myself or comments about the show, you can contact us directly on our website, beardsanddunpod.com, or leave us a comment on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, all at Beards and Dunn Pod. Yeah, and if you're on, uh, watching us on YouTube, hit the comment, like button, subscribe. Beards, Bill, thank you so much for making my day. Mine too. Thanks, guys. Stick. Talk soon. You bet, buddy. Take care, Billy. Take care.